Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Universe Podcast. I'm your host, Leo, here with my co-host, Ellie. Hello. And our guest, James. Hello. Hello, James. Would you like to introduce yourself properly? Yeah, I'm James Bailey. I write various things, which is why I'm here. I'm a, a doctoral student in history at the university, which is how I found you guys. Nice to have you here. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about writing, as we always do, and then you're going to read us a piece of your work, which is called The Little Owlbear, right? The Little Owlbear, yes. Looking forward to it very much. All right, now on to the first question session. Okay, James, so I'd like to ask you um, if you mainly write prose or poetry or a mixture. Uh, I write both for quite quite different styles and quite different reasons between the two. I write, um, I guess I write prose stories, often sort of science fiction, fantasy genres. But I, I do do poetry as well. Uh, I guess I kind of use poetry much more as a sort of mental venting mechanism, <laughs> uh, whereas I treat prose more as a sort of artwork or thing I'm actually working on and creating, uh, whereas poetry is just a down on the page. <laughs> Is there one of the two you would prefer? Um, I don't think so, because I think for me they're just such uh, different areas to look at. It's, I mean, it's sort of like, do you prefer food or sleep? I mean, like, they're, they're, kind of, they're, they're both important. Um. All right, so you have quite a diverse range of things that you're writing. Has it always been this way, or when did you start writing, and has it ever changed? I mean, I've been writing some things for about as long as I can remember. I I guess I probably... I've tended to be much more on and off with how much prose I write uh, because it's I find it a much more time-consuming process. Um, I did sort of bits of prose writing when I was kind of in my mid-teens, then that kind of dropped off a bit when I started university. And I've been sort of getting much more back into prose writing in the last few months and last year or so. Poetry is much more something I kind of consistently keep doing because it sort of keeps being a way to kind of quickly express things um i guess with prose i've sort of moved more towards a lot of the prose i write being shorter fiction because um it's something that i can actually get done in a confined space of time (laughs) yeah i know the the time um, part of this of writing very well. <laughs> we can all relate to the university fact. Like um, you always need more time at the university uh, for your creativity because um, you don't really have a lot of time to express yourself because of all of your courses and stuff. So I can relate to the to that. Like I also had to stop my prose writing for a while and then just went on with the poetry. With all those things that you write. Do you share them usually? Do you have a group of friends who read your writing? Do you share them with your family? Um, It varies, I think. Uh, I I usually do uh, just put them out somewhere. I mean, I'll often just, you know, stick them up on the internet and put a link on my Facebook when I write something or something. But um, I don't, I mean, other than Universe, I don't have a sort of separate writing kind of beta reading group or anything like that. but um, yeah, I'm usually happy to share what I write, but I don't kind of push it out there terribly hard. I've got a certain kind of reservedness and nervousness about you know, 
is is what I've written any good sort of thing, which I guess kind of tends to mean that I'm not not super pushy about it. I think that's definitely a feeling that all writers know, this nervousness about sharing. And I think that's why it's quite puzzling to me that you share it on Facebook. I've always been super reluctant to sharing anything on Facebook. How's that like for you? Um, I generally just assume that most people don't read my Facebook posts, which is usually correct. So I, I think from that perspective, it's less of a concern. But yeah, I mean, generally, I find that if I post something, I don't get that much reaction to it. It's, I mean, I almost post it there more for myself as a sort of marker. If you know, that's out there, that's done. That's something I can kind of move on from and go and do something else. It's good to have some closure. <laughs> so now for something a little bit more different. So um, what would happen if you stopped writing? Would you go crazy? <laughs> I think you get back to the kind of prose poetry distinction a bit. I think uh, the poetry is the bit that helps me kind of mentally vent and not go crazy. Though sort of prose writing and fiction writing is something I I keep coming back to. I mean, it's not, almost not so much because that the process of putting words on the page is something I find really important, but because I guess what I really like writing prose for is that I I'm very much a setting creator. I create, you know, worlds and how they work and so on. And I want some way of getting that onto a page. So it's it's kind of not so much the writing itself that I kind of keep finding I have to come back to as I need some way to get a kind of uh, portal or viewpoint onto something I've created and writing, you know, keeps being one of the ways I can do that. If you use poetry, for instance, as a vent, I would assume that you usually write your poetry when you're alone, I guess, in private. Yeah, yes. I mean, I write most things when I'm on my own. I mean, sometimes I, you know, I wouldn't have any issue with writing poetry if I was sort of at a coffee shop or something. But again, I'd probably be on my own at a coffee shop, as it were. So yeah, I don't, I don't tend to do a lot of kind of writing in a group of people type things. But I think that's I think that's relatively normal. I don't think many people write like really collaboratively in style. I think we've been trying to do that with the Creative Writing Society sometimes. I think you met up during the summer and last semester we had a poetry picnic where people could come and write poetry collaboratively. Yeah, well, um, one thing that um, I have done in the past, which is really fun, is writing chain stories where you have, you know, each person does, say, 500 words and then pass it on to the next person and you kind of construct a short story that way. And I've done some excellent ones of those in the past. Some of them just end up incredibly weird. Yeah, there was there was one I did where I... I started out with a bit from from Kubla Khan, where there's the, that uh, the old poetry line of you, um, in Zanadu de Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea, and I just kind of riffed off that for my first three hundred or five hundred words a bit, and then this developed into this sort of underground fantasy setting, which was really good fun. So yeah, it's it's interesting as an exercise doing that. Um, it's yeah it's not how i usually write but i think that there's a lot you can learn about your own writing from seeing how other people bounce off it as it were so um what about rereading your text would does that want to make you 
edit them or um, change them in any way? I tend not to do, on poetry particularly, I don't tend to edit very much because I find that a poem is often quite an, it's quite an in-the-moment thing and there's sort of not much point in going back to it and editing it for me because, I mean, what it is and the form it actually took is quite, is, is a signifier of what was going on when I wrote it. I suppose for prose, I treat it more as something I will go back and edit Though my main problem with prose writing is just getting something you know, written enough and to enough of a stage where I feel it's worth going back and editing it, um, particularly for longer projects. You know, I've got new, I've got several sort of starts of um, longer stories and books and things that I just never quite get to the sort of actually finishing the text at the point at which I would go back and seriously buckle down to the editing process but I do um, I do actually edit other people's works more than my own I think um, I actually have uh, done bits of paid work in the past as a proofreader and editor which is quite interesting um, and the different kind of things you find out about how how different people write and so on from that is uh, useful in terms of kind of reflecting on your own work as a proofreader and editor for creative writing now or rather for academic writing uh, both. So in the last year or so, yeah, I did some bits of um, academic work, but I also did, um, there's a role-playing game supplement uh, that a friend of mine is uh, producing, which is called Frozen Skies. It's a sort of um, like 1930s fantasy Alaskan setting. It's it's very good fun. And so, yeah, so I did the proofreading for that book and um there's it's got some bits of short fiction as well as the uh, kind of gaming rules and so on so that sort of thing i've worked on which is really interesting interesting 1930s alaska so fantasy as it would have been in the 1930s or is the whole story set in the 30s I mean, th- I, 30 is quite a vague thing. I think the, the term the author used to describe it is diesel punk. Um, <laughs> it's a sort of... So, yeah, you've got... it's. I guess the setting has a mix of kind of... Uh, a lot of kind of old, old-style old aeroplanes flying around, which are the only way to actually connect places up in this incredibly frozen terrain. And then... Um, there are some more kind of classic fantasy, slightly horror end creatures in it, uh, the kind of giant wolf things that will um, attack human settlements and all, sort, and all and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's an interesting and odd mixture. That definitely sounds fun. Now to some more general questions about writing. Is there anything you think that's unique about what you write? That's difficult. I mean, I think there is... I don't think there are any singular elements that I feel are unique, but I think there is... It's about combining things from different places and different genres and so on. So I suppose there is a certain kind of eclecticism about what I do, uh, partly because I'm coming from a background as a historian... Uh, so I sort of, I'm very much a kind of magpie of grabbing bits from different times, places and cultures and so on and just pulling those things together, I think, in in a way that I think 
kind of ends up being unique because the specific bizarre combinations of things I'm interested in are quite specific to me. It's quite a good writing technique, I think, just taking whatever you can get and taking your influences. I think it's maybe true for all of us, but uh, true for some more than others, that we are certainly influenced by what we read, and then you kind of piece together your own style from all of this, I would say. So there's a big question coming for you. Um, well, do you think that writing can change the world? Um, and has it changed your own personal world to begin with? Absolutely, I think, in both cases. In fact, there's uh, one of the things I do as well as um, sort of specifically writing is I do spoken word storytelling, which is quite a... Um, it's a sort of interesting how it does and doesn't relate to regular writing. And yeah, there is a there is a story I do as a spoken story about how storytelling can change the world because the stories people have in their heads about who they are and where they come from are a massive part of what constructs how people think about themselves and how people think about the world around them. And you know what stories you tell people and what stories they have about themselves and whether they have stories at all are hugely important in this uh, because I think there is a very human need to have stories about who we are. And for people, I think, who don't have stories about who they are, uh, stories will turn up from somewhere else. Um, it's a very natural thing, which is something that I guess also crosses over into interest as a historian. The... Um, the work I do, which is mostly on the uh, country of Georgia in the 12th century, is you know, very ancient Middle Ages-y type stuff. But because this was a period when like, the medieval state was quite powerful, it's massively important to modern Georgians' idea of who they are. And the, the fiction that was written then, there was a sort of great epic poem called The Night in Panther's Skin. And that is still like massive national work of literature status. And so the one of the things you kind of have to grapple with from a historian's perspective is the, the way that people have constructed these stories about the past in ways that explain who they are today. But I, and I think that's true of fiction generally. People construct the stories they need to explain to themselves who they are and what they're for and where they're going and so on. I think it gives insight to other people about things that they don't know or about people that they don't know. Um, and it, it has great power in changing their opinions. Now that we've talked so much about writing in general, we'll go to your actual work, The Little Albert. So yes, this is a um, children's story which I've started writing. I'm going to give you the first section of it. The Little Albert. Dear reader, you have probably read, or heard told to you, a lot of stories, ever since you were very little indeed. At least I hope you have. Stories are wonderful things, full of exciting adventures and strange animals at different times and places. You can discover a lot of the world if you read enough stories, and you can even discover a lot of worlds very different to the one that you and I live in. This story, though, might be a little bit different to some of the others you have read because it is about an owlbear. Do you know what an owlbear is? No? Then I shall tell you. Owlbears, the stories say, are something a bit like a bear and a bit like an owl. In this, the stories are mostly right, though in fact they are something a little bit different to either. 
The head is like an owl's, with big eyes and long, shiny feathers and a clicky, sharp beak for eating with. But their body is more like a bear with big, velvety paws and lots and lots and lots of long, soft fur. They often like being out during the dusk and dawn like an owl, and will eat fruit or fish or rats or whatever they please. For owlbears are not like us and do not have to follow many rules at all. Some of them are very big and some of them are quite small, but all of them like living in forests, where there are trees and caves and safe places for owlbears to live and play and do all the things they like doing best. A long time ago, there were a lot more owlbears than there are today. Back when there were knights and castles and dragons and all sorts of things like that. These days they've mostly gone to live a long way away, because humans are not always as kind as they should be to beasts with fur and feathers. And it usually takes someone who knows a little about magic and a lot about owlbears, a friendly witch or a helpful wizard or a travelling storyteller, to find one at all. Our story isn't just about any old owlbear, though all of them are very interesting animals. Our owlbear was a very little owlbear indeed, and she had lots of adventures that I will tell you about. Owlbears sleep a very long and very deep sleep for all of the months of winter. They're fast asleep well before the end of the year, and they will not wake up until a particular little bird starts singing in the spring, as a sort of alarm clock, so they know when it's time to come out. So first imagine as hard as you can and think of a very big forest, one with hills and crags and big trees and glades and deer and squirrels and all the things you could hope to find. In that forest there is a little cave, small and full of the leaves from the last autumn, crunchy red and yellow ones that rustle in warm heaps across the floor. Can you think what that cave might look like? Or what might have happened when a little owlbear woke up in it? Shall we find out? waking up. The little owlbear woke up in her cave. It was dark and warm and dry and full of leaves, and she'd been sleeping there for a very long time. She stretched a long, slow stretch from her very front paws, which were covered in feathers, to her very back paws, which were covered in fur. You might think it is strange for a creature to have feathers and fur together, but it is not strange at all if you are an owlbear. A first ray of light crept in through a crack in the roof of the cave. It was the first light of a spring dawn, the sort that tells you that the sun is coming back. Even though a big winter is very cold and dark, the dawn of a spring morning always lets you know that big, cold, dark things go away again. This is especially true if it is a dawn where you can hear birdsong, for the birds know a lot about the sun and will talk about it to all of their friends at the slightest opportunity. When birds talk, it sounds a lot more musical than when we humans do. Though perhaps that is just something that we think because we do not know all the words, and the birds think of birdsong as just boring chatter and enjoy listening to all the strange noises that humans make instead. This morning, in any case, was fuller of birdsong than any you can probably imagine, unless you've lived in a cave in the woods in spring. And I hope you haven't, because they're not such good places for little humans to sleep as they are for little owlbears. It was so full of birdsong at first that the little owlbear just tried to cover her ears with leaves from all the noise. Eventually, though, the birds continued to sing, and it was quite a pretty sound, really. So the little owlbear realised that it was time to get up and see what was going on in the big, wide world outside. The entrance to her cave was a hole underneath the root of a very big tree. It did not have a door or a door knocker or a welcome mat or any of the things you might imagine the entrance to a house ought to have. But it was hers 
and everyone knew that, and in any case she did not have any neighbours who might accidentally mistake it for their own. She poked her head out of the entranceway and felt a little warm glow on her face as the rosy fingers of dawn wrapped themselves around the world. She gave a long, low call, much like you might hear an owl make if you listen carefully after dark, but bigger and deeper, and it filled up the valley for all the chatter of the birds went silent. If you'd been there to hear it, I am sure that you would have been silent too, for there is no noise quite like it. It's an old call, a song made out of fallen trees and steep hillsides and caves and rushing streams, so old that it rings in the black flint bones of the hills. And once you've heard it, they say there is a little bit of flint and wildness in you too, that stays with you long after the last echoes have died away. The little owlbear blinked, and her eyes were sharp and shone with an autumnal gold. As her call bounced and echoed around the valley, it faded, and the chirrups and songs and chatter of the door birds began again. She stretched a second time, and then emerged into the light, and ambled off downhill. The world she saw around her was very different to the one she'd fallen asleep in four months before. She was still a very young owlbear, so it was still a strange sort of magic to her, how she could have gone to sleep in an autumn world of brown and red and creaking trees under a grey sky, and then awoken to the fresh greens and sky blues of the springtime. Indeed, it is a sort of magic, even for the very wise sorts of people who understand how all it works. Most of the really important sorts of magic are buried in earth and rocks and the trunks of trees, or are loose in the sky and the wind and the water. And the owlbears know this well, even if we have forgotten it. She walked out the side of the valley, her side faced east towards the sunrise, and through a woodland of oak and ash, birch and beech, horse chestnut and crab apple, all turning green again for the year ahead. It was a place where the trees were ancient, clutching at the rocks with long roots, and twisting and turning as they reached together towards the sky. The air was clear and still a little cold, though the sky was bright. A stream whistled down the middle of the valley, and she padded towards it on her big soft paws. Gingerly, she reached a paw out to the water. Oh! She gave a little squeak, and her paw shot back again. Cold! I am, of course, translating, and not very well, for the languages of beasts are quite different to our own. But it is better, I think, to hear from the little owlbear in her own words as best we can imagine them. The stream was indeed still ice cold, fed by meltwater from the highest parts of the high hills that were up north of the forest. Nonetheless, the little owlbear was very thirsty, for the trouble with sleeping for four months, and the reason you should never try it, dear reader, is that when you wake up, you find you haven't had anything to eat or drink in a very long time indeed. She reached down and took a few quick gulps with her beak, which almost went numb with the cold of it, but the water felt very cool and nice to drink. The next thing I must do, she thought to herself, is go and find food. And that was what she did. Thank you very much for giving us this reading. I think we can really hear that you are well-versed in oral storytelling. And I was wondering, while you were reading this, I suppose it did take a lot of training, right? It doesn't really come naturally. I think it's, it's less training and more practice. And there are there are aspects of it that are more learnable than others, certainly. But I think um, I think practice is quite a large large part of it. And um, 
It's, which is one of the difficulties with storytelling because actually finding groups you can practice with is um, difficult in itself because it's such a it's one of the I guess lesser known art forms these days. But um, no, it's a it's a wonderful thing to kind of practice and learn how to do and i think it yeah helps in all sorts of ways when you're doing readings or whatever i was wondering how did you get the practice did you have a group i i picked storytelling up mostly at kind of traditional music festivals um where there are often kind of storytelling groups particularly in the uk ones you find uh, there'll often be a kind of storytelling fringe on a music festival uh my my older sister is a folk musician i mean she's a scientist but also a very good folk musician and so i often went with festivals to her and i kind of picked storytelling up as something that i could do and get involved in and started also writing specific stories for that as well awesome that, that sounds really cool I think I've heard of owl bears before. Where does the idea, or where does the owl bear come from? So they, interestingly, given that the owl bear, I think actually works for many reasons very well as a concept. Um, they were actually a very modern idea. Uh, they were created in the 1970s for the first edition uh, monster book for Dungeons and Dragons, and they were created after a guy called Gary Gygax, who was writing the book, um, just picked up this set of plastic toys at a you know toy shop and they were so badly made that he had no idea what on earth they were meant to be um so he just got all these toys and then just sat them on his desk and wrote down like an idea for what monster they were going to be and one of these looked like some weird crossover between an owl and a bear and the rest is uh yeah recent history um but uh, though at the same time i think it works very well because actually a lot of our connotations between owls and bears are there are some similarities there they're both uh kind of slightly dusk and nighttime creatures and they're both creatures that we both really like and there are very good connotations to you know, the wisdom of owls and bears being big and cuddly and nice but they're also there's that tension between the things we like about owls and bears and the fact that we're aware that they're both you know quite fierce predatory animals so i think in that way it kind of works together on a sort of visceral mythological level uh despite actually being quite a modern idea i also think it works really well i think i find them yeah there's something really ancient to them it, they feel ancient. They feel like something that's really like that's supposed to be, and at the same time, just just cute, just good thing for a children's story. Just really, really cute. So relating back to that big question before um, about changing the world with your writing, do you intend to convey any message with this story? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, I. I've not written the story with a sort of ultimate moral in mind or anything like that. So I guess it's more that I end up wanting to convey lots of messages through it because for me, I suppose writing children's stories most of all um, comes closest to an oral storytelling style where you're specifically addressing and talking to the reader quite a lot and to kind of hold their hand and talk them through this story and use that as a way to explore you know, the world generally. I don't think it's a specific message thing so much as just these are a lot of the things I would like to say to children growing up into the world we live in. Um, so yes, it's lots of messages. <laughs> We've got a very particular question from Marie and our editorial board. I'm just going to read it out to you. 
If it is set in our world, are there still owlbears today carving out a living in the dark streets of our cities? Which job would an owlbear most likely take up? Will the little owlbear ever encounter humans? Owlbears would, I think, absolutely hate it in cities. They are very much wilderness creatures. They would not, I think, enjoy the noise at all. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether they'd be very employable either. Um, I mean, if you had a large one, then you know there is potentially some security guard roles. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I I see them as very. They're quite solitary animals in some ways. I think they're um, and quite fiercely independent. They would they would not want to have an employer. <laughs> um, as to whether the little owlbear will ever encounter humans, um, the answer is is decidedly yes, but not not many. Uh, the I I have planned out what the other chapters are going to be, and there will humans will come to the forest, but the uh, the little owlbear is not about to you know go on the the New York adventure or anything like that anytime soon. Um, I thought of a job. Do you think they could be park rangers for a national park? I mean, yes, with the proviso that, like, they would just, you know, eat things that they wanted to eat, which may kind of undercut the role of a park ranger in some cases. (laughs) I was thinking about that. All right, James, thank you for bringing this very cute story to, to the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It was great. This was episode two of the Universe podcast. If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more of us, make sure to subscribe to the Universe podcast wherever you listen to it. While you're at it, we'd be delighted if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews on iTunes really help people discover our podcast. This podcast was edited and hosted by Leonhard Engelmeyer. The co-host was Elivnaz Kabaldier. Our guest was James Bailey. The editorial board for this episode was made up of Marie-Therese Sauer. This podcast was produced with the friendly assistance of the Department of Communication at the University of Vienna. I hope you visit this planet and the universe again. In the meantime, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening.